With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I accept full responsibility for my action to this day. During this time, I have been blessed to talk to a, talk to a guy who used to own one of the bars that I robbed. I don't have no letter from him, but he did tell me he do forgive me and he couldn't bleed. I was still in prison. I took up many programs since I've been inside of prison. I've been in, I've been able to stop major riots and do other good things inside the prison. I'm still very close to my family and children. They are my world. I believe if given a pardon, I can be a great help to young children. God has blessed me with the tongue to communicate with the youth. I do it every day in prison. I've been involved with programs dealing with youth and the parents. That was the Fireside Chat program we was talking about. On the board, all I'm asking is for a chance. And what I'm asking is allow me to show society that I can be helpful and not a repeat offender. I believe true repentance shows an action. That's all I've been trying to do since I've been inside of prison. Thank you, Honorable Board. Thank you, Mr. Smith. Is there anyone from the District Attorney's Office or the Department of Correction wishing to speak in opposition to this request? Mr. Nance. Yes, sir. Thank you again, Aaron Nance for the Clark County DA's Office. Uh, regarding the instant offense uh, that we're here to consider, uh, this was an incredibly brutal string of robberies. Uh, some facts that can't go without notice are that uh, one of the victims was smashed in the head with a shotgun so hard it splintered off a piece of the weapon that was left at the scene. It's ultimately used to match it back once they found the weapon in uh, uh, the defendant's apartment. Uh, a second lady that was robbed, female victim, uh, she was not resisting in any way. None of the victims in the case were resisting in any way. Uh, she had her face smashed to the point where she needed plastic surgery, had teeth knocked out of her head. Uh, at the time of sentencing, uh, those victims expressed that they uh, were dealing with hardened criminals that should never again be released into society. That was the position of probation and parole. Uh, and this comes from an offender that prior to this had 21 adult arrests, <laughs> uh, two prison terms, as well, and was on parole at the time of uh, this string of robberies. Uh, it's the position of the Clark County DA's office that uh, he earned every bit of the sentence that was designed to incapacitate him. As far as any achievements he's uh, made progress on while he's in prison, we feel the reason for that is that it's the highly structured environment uh, where he is controlled virtually at all times. Uh, once that's removed, uh, I, it's our position of our office that uh, uh, things could very easily return to the same. And regarding the assessment uh, of his mental status and situation, he's a considerable risk to reoffend without uh, some kind of serious structure environment. Uh, I'm not confident that uh, any release on parole uh, will provide that, and uh, he has a great likelihood to return to his old ways, um, as was noted in the mental health report. I'd ask you to deny his request, and thank you for your time. Thank you, Mr. Nance. Any member of the family or victim wishing to testify in opposition to this? 
Seeing none, what is the pleasure of the board? Governor, could I ask Mr. Smith a question again on the sentence structure? I, I see that he, uh, Mr. <coughs> Smith was, uh, I'm talking about Dave Smith, I'm sorry, I got Mr. <laughs> Smith's uh, He was, uh, Michael Smith was granted uh, uh, parole on August 20, 2007 as to account. Uh, the, the count he's currently serving, I assume it's a robbery or an enhancement charge, how much left is the left in his current sentence right now? Uh, I mean, on the current count. I know there's a series of counts here. This uh, Justice Gibbons, um, on the current active sentence, uh, he's eligible in two th early 2011. That sentence will expire in uh, honor about 2017. Uh, and then, of course, he has... Four, for uh, simplicity, four consecutive sentences, um, which uh, run consecutive to each other. Um, there's some concurrent sentence within that, but for simplicity, he's got a 15-year consecutive to the active sentence, consecutive 15, consecutive 15, consecutive 10. So there's another uh, approximately 55 sentences, 55 years left that run consecutive to each other. Thank you. Governor, again, I, some of some of the last case. I mean, it's uh, these uh, crimes are horrific. I mean, uh, hitting people with guns and leaving pieces of the gun in their face, skulls, and all. I mean, uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, Mr. Michael Smith has had no infractions since 2000. He served 21 years. The current, he's got three more years. It sounds like on the current. Uh, Charge. So, w w with that in mind, I would make a motion to have his remaining counts uh, run concurrent to the count he's currently serving. So, again, he would have to serve through 2011. Then he would be eligible for parole. Doesn't mean he's going to get it, but he would be able to come before the parole board at that time. If I understand what Mr. David Smith said, so that would be my motion. I have one more question before, unless somebody wants to second this. Justice Bergeri. I was looking through this file, and as opposed to Mr. McKinney, who was up uh, right before uh, Mr. Smith, uh, it appears he's had an opportunity to complete numerous uh, programs uh, while he's been incarcerated, and it looks like the same kind of sentence structure. So why, does, why did he have an opportunity, and uh, Mr. McKinney told us that he didn't have that same opportunity? I'm just not quite sure I understand. The primary difference would be that Mr. Smith sought out programming while he was incarcerated. Okay, thank you. I have a question, Governor. Yes, Justice Seda. Um, Mr. Smith, you indicated that you intervened in and um, kept a prison riot from taking place, and yet I'm noting a record, admittedly, prior to the last eight years of your <laughs> exemplary conduct with him. <laughs> I note that you threatened a correctional officer. You were um, at least charged with violations that included battery on an inmate and participation in a riot. Um, that's what the record says. And I'm a little bit concerned about um, your representation here today that you um, participated in a way to prevent a riot from happening when instead um, our record tells us, again, prior to the last eight years, nonetheless, it still indicates that you participated in a riot. I guess I need some clarification. I could speak to that. Uh, in the record, we actually have um, a memorandum. Um, we have a commendation and we have another memorandum from... Uh, 
believe the warden's office. One of them is from 1988. Pardon me while I fumble for a minute. Well, that's the date of the riot, at least that is noted here. So it says... Here we go. Participation in a riot at Nevada State Prison, which occurred in July of 1988. Here we go. I stand corrected, Your Honor. One is dated 19, it's 10 18 1995. Um, this is from a Lieutenant S. Lane. This is a letter of appreciation for um, preventing, quote, preventing unauthorized activities at Southern Nevada Correctional Center and uh, understanding and apparently um, facilitating security needs. I, I assume that this is vague. On purpose. Understood. I understand. But there is another uh, memorandum dated March 4th, 1997, from Gary Copas, um, who speaks to him uh, assisting in reducing racial tensions and finding uh, peaceful resolutions of these things that, that crop up. So there's two documentations to support at least the manner of the activities that Mr. Smith is explaining. And I think that speaks to what I said. In the beginning, he had some real difficulties, and it shows tremendous growth that he has now gone to the other side, and he's protecting the institution's interest and protecting the interests of peace and security therein. So I think that's remarkable, and thank you for your question. Quick question. Uh, Mr. Smith, uh, I know in, in the packet that you have worked for Silver State Industries. When, when did you start working for Silver State Industries? Uh, Lee was in, in 2000. <clears throat> when they first started the car room project down there, uh, working in the car room. And what other jobs have you had at Silver State Industries besides the card room? Uh, after that, I transferred to the car room, I went to the, another company called the Cobra Shop. Is that where you currently are now? Yes, ma'am. Is that where you've learned your welding skills? Yes, ma'am, in, in the Cobra <laughs> Shop. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? There is a motion pending by Justice Gibbons to make the uh, subsequent sentences concurrent. Uh, there is no second at this time. For purposes of consideration, I'll second that motion. Any comments or questions with regard to the motion? There is a motion before the board. Uh, Mr. Secretary, call the roll. Justice Seda? I'm sorry. Um, can, can we open up discussion? Once again, because sure. there's Thank a couple you. of things that have bothered me. I, you, you know, and let me just say, um, it's very commendable, actually, what you have done and what you have accomplished. Here's my concern. Um, we just heard from the district attorney about concerns about a structured environment. Um, it seems to me that you have succeeded because you're currently in a structured environment. But not only is the district attorney pointed out, but in the uh, letter from Dr. Loftus, there is concern that you would reoffend if not in a structured environment. Uh, and my concern is I'm not sure, quite frankly, if we are in a position, the state is, to put you in a structured environment should you leave. 
Um, and so I'm kind of curious how you feel about that, those statements that are made about you being in a structured environment and whether or not that is something that has helped you to succeed. I wouldn't have no problem with it, but man, boy, I, I'm almost absolutely sure that I can get out and, and adjust to society because I, it's my daughter, I have my baby, I have my children with me, and it, I didn't grow so much. And it's not the first time that I, I have worked out there in society, you know, I have paid rent. Uh, to, to get back and make the wrong turn out there in society, you know, on wide awake, you know. Uh, I want to do so much as for dealing with society, you know. And not only just society, for the youth, you know. I got I want to get into the schools. I want to meet somebody uh, that's part of the school district. Hopefully I can talk to the youth. Uh, to me, I, I don't see myself really being being either directly going to the, going the wrong path Once, if I just get released directly back to society. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure of myself, you know, on, on the choices that I wish want to make in life. And what would you do for employment? I would work, I have a job opportunity for COPA where I'm working at right now. They have offered me a job down in Las Vegas. It's, I guess it's speed, I believe what it's called. Right then a friend of the family offered me a job at a construction site. So I have employment, you know, I have my Especially my children, you know, I got four grown children. I've been blessed where none of them have made grown choices in life. Uh, we have plans to do things together and have great support. The employment offer, by the way, is reflected in the application. And then a quick question for staff. Is there an opportunity to put him in the structured environment that we're talking about that the doctor has so reflected that will help him succeed? If he were to be released at some point in time? Well, Attorney General, if uh, you did commute a sentence and the board did parole him, certainly um, we could special condition him into a halfway house or um, perhaps prior to that he could stay at Casa Grande. Um, um, Director Skolnick could speak to that, but we could always special condition him if those uh, facilities were available. I mean, we can only um, make the condition, but of course the facility has to be available and those facilities are somewhat limited. Okay. Thank you. Well, and on that score, Ms. Selling, uh, if he's granted parole, it's going to be subject to a plan. And that plan is going to cover those particular issues. Correct. And if he person. can't fulfill the terms of that plan, he doesn't get out till he can. Correct. You're exactly correct. And based on the current motion, he would be eligible in 2011? Yes, ma'am. Is that correct? Okay. One follow-up question. I note at the time this crime was committed, although it's a very long time ago, you were under the influence, I believe, of marijuana and um, cocaine, or at least you had dabbled in um, that area. Do you anticipate that um, temptation to not only your past drugs, but the new drugs on the street will in any way influence your ability to maintain um, an appropriate lifestyle on the outside? No, man, I'm going to be involved. No drugs, uh, no drinking. Uh, that's past tense. I'm not even interested for trying to use drugs or alcohol, man. No more in my lifetime. No, ma'am. Hmm. Any further questions? Hmm. Well, once again, the motion is before the board uh, to make concurrent the subsequent sentences. Uh, Mr. Secretary, call the roll. And Governor, just for uh, to be clear on the record, uh, the assumption is is those sentences would have the same start date as the active sentence. So the 
dates that are in the record would remain the same. Justice Sadin? Yes. Justice Cherry? Yes. Justice Paragari? Yes. Justice Hardesty? Yes. Chief Justice Gibbons? Yes. Attorney General Masto? Yes. Governor Gibbons? Yes. Motion carries. Yeah, have a good day, man. Thank you very much. All right, our next uh, request before the board is that of inmate Roger Davis, inmate that Mr. Davis is present and represented by the state public defender, Ms. Harriet Cummings. Mr. Davis's request is that his two consecutive life sentences without parole be commuted to concurrent sentences and he become immediately eligible for, for parole. Ms. Cummings, floor Thank is you, yours. Governor Gibbons, honorable members of the pardons board, uh, for the record, Harriet Cummings here uh, together with Mr. Roger Davis, who joins me in thanking you for the very great privilege of being allowed to appear before you uh, today. And uh, also here on uh, Mr. Davis's behalf are several representatives uh, from his family. I would ask that they stand and be acknowledged. Uh, Holly Maynor, uh, his sister, her daughter, Angelique, and uh, Mr. Davis's daughter, Courtney. However, in the interests of time, I will not be uh, calling upon them uh, to speak uh, this afternoon. Uh, like several of the other cases uh, before you today, Mr. Davis is in prison for the most serious crime there is, the crime of murder. Uh, he was convicted in, by a jury in 1986 for having shot his girlfriend, Sandy Cusson, in the head with a 22 caliber handgun. Prior to this offense, he only had one prior uh, conviction, and that one was for misdemeanor DUI. Uh, for his crime, Mr. Sentence, Mr. Davis uh, was sentenced to uh, two consecutive terms of life in prison without the possibility of parole. So as his sentence currently stands, he will never get out of prison. Mr. Davis was a heavy drinker in those days and has no recollection of having committed the offense. And because of this, and also because uh, he could not except that he could have possibly been capable uh, of such a crime. He fought the charges and freely admits that when he first came to prison, he had a bad attitude because he felt he had been wrongly convicted. However, with the benefit of numerous rehabilitation programs, profound mm -hmm. spiritual contemplation, and the maturity that comes with age and deep personal reflection, Mr. Davis has come to understand his past and accept that the jury justifiably found him guilty. He feels great remorse for what he has done, for the harm inflicted on Sandy, as well as her family and friends, uh, his family, and for society. Uh, in sum, he is a changed man, and that is why we are here today. Um, 
And I would submit to you that he is worthy of your consideration for a number of reasons. Uh, Mr. Davis recognizes that uh, the most serious crime is deserving of the most serious punishment. However, I ask you to take into account that he has done uh, 22 years of hard time in prison for this offense. Uh, moreover, uh, one of the goals of uh, incarceration is uh, deterrence, and uh, that length of time in prison has certainly uh, been a deterrent uh, not only to uh, Mr. Davis, but I also note that uh, he participated in the uh, fireside chat program out at Ely State Prison, which you heard about uh, earlier today, and that program was specifically designed uh, to deter local youth from following in the footsteps of inmates like Mr. Davis. Uh, Mr. Davis was raised in a broken home where heavy drinking and domestic violence were unfortunately uh, the norm rather than the exception. Uh, so in a way, it's not surprising that he himself as an adult, although he did manage to hold down a job, uh, led a lifestyle of drinking, drugging, and unstable relationships. But thanks to the many programs he has taken in prison, he now recognizes that his was a lifestyle of abuse, not just of drugs and alcohol, but of himself and of others. But he wouldn't have recognized that in himself back then. Mr. Davis had a hard time adjusting to institutional life at first, not only because of the rough life that he had led, uh, but also because he could not accept responsibility for the actions that caused him to wind up in prison. However, as the record amply reflects, 22 years in prison has changed all that. Mr. Davis has bettered himself through programming and education. He's completed just about every program there is available uh, to someone on a life without parole sentence. Uh, he obtained an associate's degree from Northern Nevada Community College, making the dean's list with a GPA of 3.67. He has received training in paralegal studies, is a certified paralegal with computer training. Uh, he learned how to be a tutor and taught illiterate inmates how to read. He's taken numerous courses regarding drug and alcohol addiction, and he's gained many insights from those programs uh, into his past and has put his uh, the things he's learned to use uh, through the VVA program. And uh, I believe it is the help that he has provided to other inmates is the thing he is most proud of, of his accomplishments in prison. Mr. Davis completed the Survive and Change program, which includes various components, commitment to change, relapse prevention, uh, parenting, anger management, and drug and alcohol components. Uh, he's completed courses in emotions management and coping skills. And these tools have provided him, the, these courses have provided him the tools uh, needed uh, to prevent him from ever going back to his previous lifestyle. He also has a history of steady work uh, before entering <coughs> prison. He worked in the mine system as a journeyman boilermaker, pipe fitter, and welder. And in prison, he's worked uh, numerous jobs, porter, culinary worker, educational tutor, clerical worker, and paralegal. Uh, his, uh, the warden's report indicates that over the years, Mr. Davis has adjusted positively. He is not considered a management problem. He's had only 13 write-ups in 22 years, and most of those were minor and early on in his incarceration. Uh, his most serious write-up was 20 years ago, and in the past 10 years, he's only had two minor uh, write-ups. He gets along well with everyone and is considered a 
good inmate who uh, gets along well, tries to stay out of trouble. The warden's report indicates uh, there's no pattern of criminality, uh, no addictions. Uh, the warden's report indicates there's no sustained mental incapacity or dysfunction. Um, I realize that this appears, uh, at least superficially, to uh, conflict with uh, Dr. Loftus's report, uh, which concludes that Mr. Davis has an antisocial personality um, at high risk to recidivate. Yet, as uh, there's been discussion earlier today, many of these conclusions appear to be based on uh, conduct, which is you know, 20, 25 uh, years old and doesn't appear to take into account uh, adequate consideration for the progress he has made in prison. And uh, we have an ongoing objection to these reports because of our inability uh, to hire uh, independent experts uh, to counter those conclusions, and that's why I submitted the article uh, that has been discussed in other cases uh, today uh, that is critical of that particular diagnosis. However, I do note on the positive side, uh, the report concludes that Mr. Davis does not suffer uh, from any sort of psychosis and concludes that the risk of recidivism is minimized uh, with community supervision. And of course, what we are asking uh, for today is that uh, if his sentence were commuted, it would be to include uh, immediate parole eligibility. And so if paroled, uh, he would be under community supervision for his entire life. Uh, regarding Mr. Davis's physical health, as outlined in the letter from Dr. Gedney, uh, he suffers from numerous serious medical problems, uh, osteoarthritis, degenerative joint disease. Uh, he cannot uh, take but more than a couple of steps, and so he is uh, confined to a wheelchair. He takes numerous medications. Uh, the pain meds put him at risk for a GI bleed. However, he cannot function. Uh, without those those medications. And uh, on that note, Mr. Davis um, has expressed uh, great concern to me that to the untrained eye, uh, his condition uh, may make him appear as if he were drunk. Uh, it's my understanding that he suffers from ataxia, which affects his equilibrium, uh, which in turn makes him very wobbly on his feet and can affect his uh, speech. And I understand that becomes more problematic uh, when he is tired or stressed. Uh, so I just ask that you take that into account uh, when you hear from him uh, in a moment. Regarding uh, his future, if granted the opportunity to appear before the parole board, uh, Mr. Davis has a number of options available to him. Relatives and friends have offered him uh, assistance in reintegrating uh, into society in terms of uh, employment, housing, and what have you. Uh, in addition, uh, he hopes to uh, work as a paralegal. Uh, we believe he would qualify for Social Security disability. At age 60, he has a retirement coming in from the mines, and he also uh, wishes to uh, help with uh, drug and alcohol counseling. Uh, in conclusion, Director Skolnick has recommended that Mr. Davis be commuted to uh, concurrent sentences with immediate parole eligibility. Um, and I know that the director does not make those types of recommendations lightly, and so we would ask that you give serious consideration uh, to his advice. Uh, commuting Mr. Davis's sentence from life without the possibility of parole uh, to one uh, with parole, where he would remain under parole supervision for the rest of his life if the parole board saw fit uh, to release him on parole, uh, strikes the proper balance 
that we are looking for in terms of protecting society, uh, yet at the same time uh, rewarding Mr. Davis for his uh, progress in terms of rehabilitation. And so in sum, what we are asking for today uh, is that you take Mr. Davis's sentence, present sentence, which is a sentence without hope, uh, and make that one to a sentence with hope. That's all I have to say. I know Mr. Davis uh, would like to address the board. Mr. Davis. <clears throat> I pretty much have to read this. I'm so nervous. Uh, good afternoon. It is my privilege to be here today appearing before this honorable partner board. I'm grateful for this opportunity. I am extremely remorseful over the death of Sandy Renee Gusson. I think about and pray for her every single day. For over 22 years, I have thought about and deeply regret my action that caused her death. With the evidence presented at trial that I did shoot her, I accept full responsibility for her death. I have never had the opportunity to apologize to her family. The pain and suffering I caused them is beyond measure, and I am deeply, deeply sorry. I do not expect their forgiveness, and I understand if they don't. <clears throat> At the time of the incident, I was 34 years old, an alcoholic and a drug user. Now I am 56 years old, and I've been sober and straight for 22 years. I have absolutely no desire to, and I will never drink alcohol or use illicit drugs again ever in my life. I've taken every available opportunity offered to me by Nevada prison system to rehabilitate, further my education and career opportunities. I have specifically addressed every problem individually and together, which included domestic violence and anger management. And with the knowledge I have gained during my incarceration, I will be able to educate and guide not only members of my family, but other members of society from making the same mistakes I did, especially our youth out there. Should this honorable pardons board grant me clemency, I know I would be a productive member of society. I do have a good education in word of history. I have lots of support from my church friends and family that will help get me started. I have a retirement pension with benefits coming from Kennecott Minerals that I can start to draw at age 60. I am eligible for Social Security benefits. I am a good Christian baptized by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I look forward to being a member of Christian society. I pray for your mercy and honorable pardon, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Davis. Is there any member of the District Attorney's Office or the Department of Corrections wishing to speak in opposition to this? Are there any members of the family or victims present today that wish to speak in opposition to this? Please identify yourself for the record. I'm Edna May Duncan. The girls will identify themselves when they speak. I'm Edna May Duncan. I'm Sandy's mother. Inmate Punchy Davis. Killed her. He murdered my daughter. He took the life out of her and he took her out of our lives. We have not had a family reunion that was complete in 22 years. The 
picture of her that hangs on the wall in our home has not changed and cannot change. Sandy didn't get a chance to know her nephews. She didn't even get to see the two that were born after she died. They didn't get to know her. We didn't get to know her children, even if she would have any. We didn't get to know what her life would be or what she would give our lives. He took all the answers to those questions away from us. Now he asks for a chance to live in a free society outside the walls of prison. What chances did he give her? Not only did he kill her, but we have to live with the thoughts of what he did to the last hours of her <coughs> life. The numerous bruises on her body, the sodomy. Sandy died that day and is gone from our lives forever. In my heart and in my mind, he needs to pay just as long. He deserves no better. And I ask that when you consider his appeal, you consider our feelings also. I'm here with my sister today. And I want Would to Would you please identify yourself? Please. I'm here. Oh, Carol Cousson, C-U-S-S-O-N. I'm here with my sister today. And I want to remind you that there should be another sister. The actions of Punchy, that was his nickname, Roger Davis, changed that forever. This was not an unfortunate accident. This was a senseless, brutal, horrific murder. Not only did I have to live through the loss of my sister, I had to endure during the trial the incredibly descriptive moment-by-moment -moment explanation of Sandy's death being held against her will in case you've forgotten, raped by sodomization, beaten, she was beaten, severely beaten, and finally, the shooting which took her life. I have lived with those images for the last 22 years. He took my sister from me, and with that, he took my security. It rocked my faith in God. I am so glad to hear he's a Christian, but for me, it's been a difficult process back. I was pregnant at the time of the murder and can't tell you the effect my son, it had on raising my son during that difficult time. I've spent years in counseling. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress syndrome. I have lived with increased anxiety a sense of fear, and a life spent knowing that bad things really do happen to good people. A sad fact to live with. He changed not only Sandy's life, but has changed mine forever as well. The effects of Roger Davis's actions are far-reaching and will never be fully known. The only freedom I have from this experience is knowing he's been locked away with no possibility of parole. It's even beyond my understanding why we are even here. Justice has already spoken. Let it prevail. Thank you. Also, my brother was not able to attend. He sent a letter. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to read it. And if you have not, I would like to read it now. Please read the letter. Yes. 
My name is Lyle H. Cousson II. I'm the brother of Sandy Renee Cousson. On May 1st, 1986, she was the victim of murder by one of your inmates, Roger Davis. I understand Davis has applied for a change of status for his current conviction of murder. I wish for this letter to be on record as opposing the request for this change. 22 years ago, 12 peers found him guilty of the crime of murder. Through them, the judge and the prosecutor, it was determined inmate Davis had committed such a heinous crime and as was of such risk that he was not worthy of possibility of parole. While there are certain crimes that rehabilitation can help to overcome, first degree murder is not one. My understanding is convict Davis was not a newcomer to violent crimes before he escalated to becoming a murderer. There is no way I can be convinced by spending time with hardened criminals for the last 22 years that inmate Davis has become any less of a risk to the general community. The loss suffered by my family cannot be overcome by incarcerating someone, but to open the door to the possibility that a perpetrator could eventually walk free among law-abiding citizens would only rub salt in the wounds convict Davis has created. The phrase, don't do the crime unless you can do the time, comes to mind. My sister's time ended the day inmate Davis decided it was acceptable to murder her. She does not get a second chance at life. She cannot extend the brief 22 years she was allowed on this earth. There is only one person responsible for the, pla the place convict Davis is now. That is him. He, in my opinion, forfeited his right for freedom of his own free will. Please consider this request very carefully. Your decision affects my entire family as well as the citizens of Nevada. And that's from Lyle Cousin as well. Thank you. My name is Terry Cousin Hankinson. We wrote letters to stay succinct, but if I could deviate, please. I just want to say as common citizens, it is really beyond our belief that a man serving two life consecutive sentences without the possibility of control or parole even gets your time. And now he even gets another piece of our life. I've heard many times this morning the reference of 22 or 21 or 23 years being a long time to serve. My sister was 22 years old and she was not here a long time. The brutal murder of my sister Sandy isn't just something that happened in 1986. It is something that happens at every holiday and at every family gathering. Our loss is still vivid. The years have only blurred the stark images and testimony at the trial. Now we have been forced to revisit the horror of those days. The pictures of her beaten and bruised body, the blood-soaked pillow that he held her bloody face in while he sodomized her. We learned more about blood velocity, blood spray, and the patterns of blood splatter and spatter and smatter than any normal person should have to know. This was an incomprehensible, premeditated torture and murder of my sister. Testimony not allowed in the trial should be of consideration here today. A history of terrorizing and abused women terrorized and abused women who feel safe with him locked up forever. 
and you must consider the safety of our society. If he can have two life sentences without parole commuted, there is certainly a chance he could walk the streets a free man someday. I try not to think of him in college classes or having his programs or sitting in a sunny day in the prison yard or that he gets visits from his family. We cry regularly at a stone. We feel he's already been granted mercy. He is not on death row. Please, I beg you, please give us this small bit of comfort. Keep this brutal man in prison for the rest of his life without the possibility Thank you. Thank you. Any member of the board have a question? I've got a question. When you uh, made your statement, Mr. Davis, you indicated that you take full responsibility for shooting her. But as I look through these uh, reports, uh, every one of them indicates that uh, you still maintain that you don't remember killing the victim. I don't. I asked. For some reason, it's blocked out. I've spent years thinking about this. I've asked Ms. Loftus <laughs> to provide me with a hypnotist. It's something I would like to know more than anything on this earth. I accept full responsibility based on the evidence and everything that was there. Yes, I did. There's, there's just can be no other way, but it's just for some reason, I don't remember doing it. And then, Ms. Cummings, I'm, you've seen uh, um, the reports as well. And with the risk assessment, uh, it's indicated Mr. Davis is at high risk for overall recidivism due to his antisocial personality disorder. But it goes on further, uh, and this is certainly a concern for me. Uh, in addition, his risk is high for domestic battery and sexualized aggression. He is at great, greater risk if he resumes the use of uh, disinhibiting substances. Um, can you just address that point briefly? Yes, Your Honor. Um, as has been uh, discussed previously uh, today, this diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder uh, does seem to base, be based um, in large part uh, upon the inmate's past, and Mr. Uh, Davis was uh, very forthright with Dr. Loftus in terms of his uh, past relationships, not just with the victim in this case, uh, but with other women as well. Uh, I believe the report indicates uh, that uh, he uh, had a number uh, of relationships uh, that did not uh, last. And so uh, Mr. Davis, although he would not have recognized it at the time, uh, certainly, his drinking was a very sig significant factor uh, in his violent behavior. And to uh, address your previous question, uh, we don't know, but I don't, I don't know if he was uh, in some sort of alcoholic blackout uh, when this incident took place or if it was just so uh, traumatic that he has simply blocked it out of his mind and, and his brain just can't go there. Uh, I, I don't know the answer. Didn't he initially claim it was a suicide? Uh, I believe in my uh, conversations with Mr. Davis that when he came to, that was in fact his belief because he found her shot and 
was not, because he had been blacked out, was not aware of what had happened. And so that is why he believed that at the time. And as he has indicated to me, although he had a past history, just one prior DUI, he had not had any prior convictions for violence and so could not perceive himself as being capable of such an act. And so it's an acknowledgment of his past history that I certainly can understand Dr. Loftus' concern and conclusion about his risk factors. However, the programming that he has done in prison has really opened his eyes, not only to the societal problems that result from domestic violence and brutality, particularly towards women, but also the impact that drinking and drugs were having on his life at that time. Although he apparently didn't have such a severe problem that he was not able to hold down a job, he would acknowledge that he did have a severe problem and that drinking and drugs were a very significant contributing factor to his conduct at the time. And Dr. Loftus indicates that if he were to return to substance abuse, certainly those problems could be exacerbated. And Mr. Davis would agree with that, that if he were to return to substance abuse, that would be a very big problem. However, I think that the programming he has done has educated him to understand the consequences of this are simply unacceptable and he cannot ever go there again. Thank you, Ms. Cummings. That answered my question. Actually, I'm going to make a motion to deny. I have a comment, if you don't mind. So that you understand, as a former trial judge for eight years, I get sort of uncomfortable when we second-guess the trial judges who sentence somebody on a robbery or a narcotics case. In this particular case, we would be second-guessing a jury, which felt that he should spend the rest of his life in prison without the possibility of parole. And as someone who has been a former criminal defense attorney and a trial judge, I can't imagine that a parole board would parole somebody like this with this state of the record, denying responsibility, really, by saying he doesn't remember. I have trouble believing that. And also with the report that he's a high-risk reoffender. So I think, at least at this point, I think that we could give a little bit of closure to this family, just a little bit today, by denying. And I'll second your motion, Justice Perigari, as soon as you make it. But I wanted you to know how I feel about this. I couldn't imagine a parole board paroling this guy on the state of this record. So I certainly would not want to commute his sentence to even give them an opportunity to make the mistake of paroling him. Governor, I can just make one comment, too. I know myself, I know with Justice Cherry and our other members of the Supreme Court being formal trial judges, I probably sentenced thousands of people the days I was a trial judge. And you get periodically, you get this temporary amnesia defense. I don't remember what happened. Usually it's a very serious offense. So I always was pretty skeptical of that. People, if it's convenient or something, they really don't remember here, Mr. Davis. But I'm just horrified by this abuse of Ms. Kuzan, the sexual abuse, the physical abuse, and all. And what she not only put her through, but her family through is just unforgivable in my book. But anyway, that's my only comment. Any other comments or questions? 
Motion by Justice Paragary is to deny the request. And seconded I would second by it. Justice Cherry. Any comments or questions by any member regarding the motion? Hearing none, Mr. Secretary Collarow. Justice Sadis? Yes. Justice Cherry? Yes. Justice Paragary? Yes. Justice Hardesty? Yes. Chief Justice Gibbons? Yes. Attorney General Masto? Yes. Governor Gibbons? Yes. Motion carries. Motion is denied. <coughs> At this point in time, let us take a 10-minute uh, break, and uh, we'll resume here uh, in 10 minutes. Now the request of inmate Nolan Klein, number 28074. Um, let the record reflect Mr. Klein is present and represented by his attorney, Robert Hager. Mr. Hager, do you have something you wish to contribute to the board? I do. Thank you. First, I'd like to inform you that Mr. Klein has MRSA, a superbug, and a lot of the documents that I submitted to you are medical records. I didn't submit all those to you for you to look at each page, but for you to see the amount of medical records for Mr. Klein over the last, since November of last year. The cost of his medical treatment, I'm informed, has been $130,000. During one of his hospitalizations, in fact, the psychological report assessment reflects this, Mr. Klein was near death and not expected to live. He has one foot in the grave uh, as he's here today. What we're asking you to do is co to commute his sentence to time served. We feel that the humanitarian aspect in this case is vital. Mr. Klein was honorably discharged from the military and he's eligible for treatment by the VA. If he drinks or takes any drugs because of MRSA, he will die. So it's the ultimate protection against any drinking or drug use. I'd like to go through, I know there's a lot of materials in this report, but I'd like to go through some of those materials and I, I hope that you've all received this letter from Ing Counseling in which the issue of antisocial personality order is addressed and also the issue of whether Mr. Klein's failure to admit guilt affects any risk of recidivism. If you look at the psychological reports, and in this case there's a dissenting report by Dr. Schofield, what those report, reports clearly reflect is that Mr. Klein's refusal to admit guilt has weighed heavily with regard to the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder and with regard to his risk to reoffend. In the report by Ing Counseling, you see that 
it is stated that the answer to the first question posted there, if you have that report in front of you, is no. The preponderance of research available in the field of the treatment of sex offenders indicates that the treatment effect found in those who admit sex crimes is the same for those who deny. The answer to the second question with regard to the antisocial personality disorder diagnosis that two out of the three psychologists concluded with regard to Mr. Klein is that it's internally inconsistent to say that Mr. Klein has no obvious symptoms of major medical illness and he has antisocial personality disorder. Furthermore, specifically with regard to the antisocial personality disorder, it was found that Mr. Klein demonstrates no obvious symptoms of any major mental illness. One of the reasons why the risk assessment in this case was written the way that it is is because Mr. Klein has not had the availability of sex offenders treatment in the prison system because he has maintained his innocence. He's maintained his innocence since day one, since the day he was arrested. He sent a letter shortly after he was convicted requesting that the evidence be preserved in this case. That evidence also included two cigarette butts with filters that the victims in the case said that the per perpetrator had smoked. Those cigarette butts were removed from evidence without a court order and are not available for testing. Included within the materials that I submitted to you is a letter from Barry Sheck of the Innocence Project offering to represent Mr. Klein if he could provide evidence that could be tested with new DNA technology. That evidence is not there. Also included in your documents are, is an affidavit from my law partner who went to the evidence locker and saw that the evidence post-trial had been taken out of the evidence locker by the district attorney. And that instead of those two cigarette filters that could have been used to exonerate the, the tested, and if the DNA was not Mr. Klein's, would have exonerated him, what is instead there now is some loose cigarette tobacco and some paper. How that can happen is beyond me. How one party can have access to evidence post-trial and go in and remove that evidence, whether it's defense or the state, I don't understand. It would be like me going in and switching evidence after a trial and placing somebody else's cigarettes in instead of my clients. It should never happen. But that's what happened in this case. Because Mr. Klein has maintained his innocence since the time of his arrest, and because that evidence that could prove his innocence is no longer available, he'll die in prison if this board doesn't commute his sentence, because he will never admit that he committed these crimes. I've had conversations with him. I've encouraged <coughs> him to just admit, and he won't do it. The parole board has made it clear that so long as he denies that he committed these crimes, he'll never be paroled. You're all familiar with the laws related to spoilation of evidence, and that when evidence is spoilated, it's to be inferred against the party who had control of that evidence. In this case, Mr. Klein 
and his attorney never had control over that evidence. The state did. So we find ourselves here today with someone, and, and now I can go through what he's done in prison, but that's, that's really what's dramatically different about this case than what you've heard in the other cases. Mr. Klein, if you ask him, will you admit here today that you did this and we will let you out of prison? He'll tell you no. It's not defiance. He was convicted once before of battery when he and, and did a prison term, term when he found his wife in bed with another man. He immediately pled guilty and he admitted that he did that. And if you ask him today, he'll admit that he did that. But he will never admit that he committed these other crimes. Now, it's not just the affidavit of my law partner that reflects that the district attorney's office removed these items from evidence. I have here, if it's disputed, a portion of a videotaped interview of the district attorney in Washoe County stating a few weeks ago on TV that, of course, that evidence is out of there. It was tested. Where's the report? Where is the report of the testing of those cigarette filters? It's never been produced. It would either be Brady material and exculpatory, or it would be incriminating. I'll, I'll wrap up by telling you some of the things that Mr. Klein has done since he's been in prison. And I'm, I've gone in the materials past. I, I apologize, these were not Bates numbered, but it's after the end of the medical records. <laughs> see some photographs there relating to the evidence. I understand that they're difficult to see, except that you can see clearly a cigarette filter in one of the photographs. The next thing you see is a November 25th, 1995 letter from the Innocence Project signed by Barry Sheck stating that they would be interested in having taking Mr. Klein's case. Mr. Klein immediately filed a motion. They have these cigarette filters. Am I out of time? You have one minute, Mr. Kager. They have these cigarette filters tested, but they're no longer available. In the materials, you also see that Mr. Klein completed a legal assistant paralegal course with Blackstone School of Law. He completed Another paralegal course at Mountain High School, White Pine, White Pine County School District. He also completed a paralegal diploma at the Northern Nevada Community College in White Pine, White Pine County School District in July of 1992. He's participated in Vietnam Veterans of America and he's also been active and, and the largest fundraiser ever in the Breast Cancer Foundation in 2003. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hager. Is there any member of the uh, district attorney's office here present wishing to uh, speak in opposition to this motion? There is, uh, <clears throat> Governor Gibbons, uh, John Helzer on behalf of the Washoe County District Attorney's Office. <clears throat> And again, uh, I'd like to thank the members of the uh, Pardons Board for this opportunity. 
Um, you know, I, I, without going into great detail, there's been a lot of litigation in this case. Um, a lot of litigation. There have been a lot of uh, accusations. We're here to determine whether, in fact, this individual, this defendant, should be granted the relief he requested. And, and it's interesting. That relief is telling because, yes, this defendant will not admit. Doesn't mean he didn't do it, but he will not admit. And so he found himself kind of boxed because after much effort, he ends up, as he acknowledges in his application, that the parole board's never going to turn him loose because since he won't admit, he will not meet the psychological criteria to be released. So what he has to do is come in front of the pardons board and say, you're my last hope. I want you to give me, and I thought it was a term of years requested, now I hear just time served. I want you to give me basically a ticket out of here without having to admit, with no tail, and so that there will be no supervision, there will be no admission, there will be no requirement that he actually ever comes to grips with what he did. And what he did is no mystery. Payless shoes and sparks. Now before I came here, it's, it's kind of interesting, but before I even knew that this was going to be considered for pardons, I was reviewing this file because I wanted to know more about it. I keep hearing things. I went over and talked to Commander Asher at the Sparks Police Department. Had my intern kind of highlight in uh, all of the, uh, the statements as best he could, and then I, I went through it. Yeah, the victims in this case, we have an 18-year-old young woman, and we have a 21-year-old young woman that are working at Pay Less Shoes. And the defendant comes in the once washing the window, and he says, you come in. He's got a knife in her. Pushes her in. Isolates them. Because the issue here is identity, right? And think about this. Puts them into like a bathroom or storage closet. I mean, because they, they pretty much are chattel at that point until he goes and picks one out. The 21-year-old, you're going to come with me on the floor sexually assaulted. How long do you think that took? Well, it was about 20 minutes before he retrieved one from, one young woman from, the, from that room. And then there was a sexual assault. And then there was a placing of this individual back into the room with the other victim. You think they could ID that individual? You think they know who locked him up, who stabbed, uh, put the knife to him, who raped them? You think they know? That's this case. And what is amazing to me, what is amazing to me, is that we have this continued denial in the sense that you're supposed to buy into it. And we're supposed to actually consider letting him have time served and walk out of here. All I've heard today from many members of, the, of this, this board is the, the value of admission, the value of having, even if it's a close call, I've heard the, the discussions that have been going on saying, well, he's just going to go to the parole board, and they won't let him go unless there are safeguards and our community has some assurances that there will be some protections. That's not what he says. He wants it all or nothing. It's time for Mr. Klein to realize he did it. And it's time for you to send the message to him, we know you did it. Do not grant the request. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hilzer. Mr. Hilzer, what about the cigarette butt issue here then? Like well, Your Honor, I really wasn't prepared for an appeal. I do know that's an accusation. And those are the types of things that we see uh, are available for review through a numerous, uh, whether it's the state courts, the federal courts. There's been a lot of litigation in this case. And to come forward and just say that, you know, there, there's this evidence problem, um, well, then go litigate it. But don't come in and say that's a reason 
to sit there and give him time served just because they say that and because they say it's of significance. Um, not at all. Um, you know, I thought it was interesting, the comment with the <coughs> counsel said, he told him, I said, just, just admit it. He didn't say, just tell him you did it. He says, just admit it. Is there any member of family or victim here willing or present to testify in opposition to this motion? Any member of the board have a question? Hearing none, is there a motion by the board? Governor, I'll move to deny. I'll second, Justice Cherry. Justice Seda, was that a motion to deny? And seconded by uh, Justice Cherry. Any comment or question by any member of the board uh, on the motion? Hearing none, Mr. Secretary, call a roll. Justice Seda? Yes. Justice Cherry? Yes. Justice Paragari? Yes. Justice Hardesty? Yes. Chief Justice Gibbons? Yes. Attorney General Masto? Yes. Governor Gibbons? Yes. Motion carries. Request is denied. Thank you. The next request before this board is that of inmate Thomas Welsh, inmate number 28147. the record reflect that Mr. Welsh is present before the board and represented by the state public defender of Mr. Jim Logan. And the request of uh, Mr. Welsh is the commutation of his sentence from life without parole to life with parole and immediately parole eligibility. Is that correct, Mr. Logan? Uh, yes, Governor, it is. Uh, Mr. Logan, do you have something to present to the board? Um, yes, just a few comments. and. Uh, uh, Thomas Welch comes before the board having uh, spent 20 years in uh, prison on a life without possibility of parole. Um, I think what's important about, uh, one of the things that's important about this case is he has always accepted responsibility. Um, just this morning I talked to Doug Lindemann who's here to uh, say a few words to you and he told me that uh, he related a story that originally uh, Tom fled to California, but he called a member of the ministry, uh, told him where he was, and was subsequently apprehended. Then he, well, when he was in Las Vegas, um, he, he told his lawyer, as was reflected in a, in a letter in the file, uh, that he would plead guilty. His lawyer then told him, wait, I'll go get a deal for you. And they came back, and he has always accepted, he pled guilty and has always accepted responsibility for his crime. Uh, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, and he went to prison. And because basically he is, you know, felt there was no hope, there's never getting out, he has focused on work, and he's worked very, you know, he's one of the good workers 
in the prison, and, and, th and that's what he's done. Um, uh, he hasn't had a disciplinary in the last uh, uh, thir 13 and a half years. Um, if he is, uh, we talked about it, uh, if he is, uh, if his sentence is commuted, he realizes he, he must start programming and he has to get by the parole board. Um, but he's here to ask you uh, for one, one more chance. Uh, before he did this, he had no criminal record. Uh, today, he cannot really tell you. He can tell you the facts, but he can't tell you why. There is no excuse for what he did. Um, Mr. Logan, what about this? the issue of the... Uh the district attorney's office said this was a stipulated sentence of life without, and therefore it is inappropriate to request this relief. What's your position on that? Oh, I have a number of positions on that, actually. Um, the, first, the, the first position I have is I've always questioned taking away sentencing prerogatives from judges. I, I mean, you know, even stipulating to something like that. But it was a stipulated sentence. And I talked to Tom about it. And he told me, I, I, I dare say that you will not see in that uh, plea agreement a, a, uh, a, any, any uh, a statement that he would not seek commutation. Because he tells me that when he talked to his lawyer, his lawyer said, look, it, you, you, you take this deal, you're going to be in jail for the rest of your life. There is a one glimmer of little hope out there. And that's what it is, just a glimmer of hope that, that you may get a commutation someday. Then when he went into plea and the judge, who was the judge? Um, uh, Levitt. Levitt. Judge Levitt canvassed him and he tells me that uh, Judge Levitt told him, you know, you understand that life without means life without. But Judge Levitt did say that uh, there is this one little glimmer out there, maybe the pardons board, somewhere down the line. So I don't know that the fact that it was a stipulated sentence. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, I know this is a murder case. And it's, it's, it's more in the nature of a crime of passion. We've seen a lot of cases today. Some of them had to do with people killing people for money or whatever. When you look at the, at the, at the facts and circumstances surrounding this case, um, it, was, it was more of a crime of passion. Now, I know that what happened is once he committed the act and the gentleman died almost instantaneously, he tells me, he then realized that his whole life was over and he did rummage around, looked for money, and took the car. But he did not go there with that intention of, of uh, you know, robbing or anything like that. In fact, the two of them were uh, acquaintances from the poker circus. So I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that it was a life without kind of a case. At least it was up to the judge maybe to see the circumstances and make a, make a decision. But then I'm just second-guessing the whole thing. But that'd be my response to the to the district attorney's letter. Was it stipulated uh, sentence because perhaps they were seeking a death penalty in this? 
I don't know. I, what is it? It doesn't look like there are any aggravating circumstances. I, I wouldn't think it would cause, you know, uh, it, it doesn't seem to be that, that kind of a case, although, you know, it's not hard to find at least one aggravator in the whole, uh, uh, there's so many of them and they're so broad, but. Uh, well, there was a, well, a robbery and the victim is over 65, I believe. So. I think he was 70, 71 years so old. 71? Yeah. They, they had a long string of, of uh, crimes. There was a murder with a deadly weapon and then uh, there was a enhancement for overage and then there was the there was the burglary and this car, stealing the car and stuff like that and those those were all dropped just the one crime um could I uh, have mr uh, he'd like to read a statement but could I have mr. Lindemann come up and speak yes one thing that he said to me and uh, we were talking, and, and we were talking about the circumstances of the crime. And I'll tell you, I've been doing this for 18 years, and he looked at me with the most pain face I've ever seen. And he said, the, the, the guilt never goes away. And then he kind of broke up like he does now. But I, I just throw that out to you. Mr. Linderman. My name is Joseph uh, Doug Linderman. I pastor Oasis Christian Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, Governor Gibbons, members of the board, um, Thank you for the privilege to speak briefly of my friendship with Tommy. Um, I've known Tommy for 21 years. Uh, you received a letter from me, and I just would like to make some uh, added comments. Um, since his incarceration, uh, we have co corresponded through letters and uh, phone and visitations when he was near Las Vegas. Um, I have a file in my briefcase with me of 118 letters that he has written to me just in the last six years alone in our correspondence. I'd just like to speak briefly of the Tommy that I know today. Um, the Tommy I know today has knitted bare. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.